Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Yes, welcome along. Uh, Matt Walsh here for another big episode of the podcast this week. We've got uh, a special guest joining us, uh, Chris Dorry. He's our AFL draft expert. He's going to jump on uh, a little bit later to talk early draft prospects, including the much-hyped Nick Dacos. Christian, he's going to talk about the best players under pressure, and we're going to try and fix Collingwood. Jake Michaels, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Good to be here. Not feeling great this week. I've uh, been sick all weekend, so just on the couch with a blanket watching all the games and um yeah that's my that's my medicine cup of, well, cup do, of hot you tea. well i felt sick on friday night i was at the the richmond bulldogs game and i just felt sick and i'll Uh-oh. spare the details but i didn't sleep much and i was i was in the bathroom most of uh friday night and then yeah the last couple of days just real headachey and a little bit sort of fatigued so yeah. wasn't the thai chicken salad at the mcg was it well the chicken didn't look the greatest, I'm going to say. I'm not blaming it. I'm not going to oh. not naming any names, but yeah. Um, don't avoid the chicken if you can. <laughs> <laughs> Sound advice for life. Uh, Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Welcome along for another week. Uh, you too have been a bit under the weather, you've said before. Oh, yeah. As I said, just uh, kids got cold from kinder and school as they do. And I think I've woken up with it this morning. So um, yeah, staying at home, but. As you said, my uh, bit of dulcet tone. So maybe I do sound yeah. better with a bit of a, with a bit of a. These new microphones nose, combined but... with a bit of a stuffy nose and throat area, and everyone's sounding very nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we jump into another big episode, guys, uh, something that grabbed your attention from the weekend that we might otherwise miss. Uh, we'll run through these pretty quick, Jake. Anything catch your attention? Oh, uh, there was a few things, but the. <laughs> The, what, the thing that caught my attention, I was hoping the commentators wouldn't mention it because as soon as I heard it, I thought that's oh, great. We're not bagging the commentators that. again, are we? No, no, not the commentators. No, that's you. Um, <laughs> was um, Razor Ray just champing our mate Jack Nunes uh, in the in the Carlton Essendon game after he gave away, I think he gave away a free kick um, and he just said, he called he just called him champ out of nowhere and it, the pick came up through the through the mics and it was kind of, I had a good chuckle about that, but the commentators mentioned it. The other thing with Razor is, can we, can we get him to stop bouncing the ball? He cannot, I know we've spoken about this before, but it is getting beyond a joke now, the amount of times he bounces the ball about, you know, not even Ruckman head height. I'm and with there you on this. Times where, yeah. There's three umpires a game and some umpires, some games there's clear and um, clearly an umpire that's better at bouncing than the others. I don't understand why they Let don't do work it. out. Yeah. You just Let take do it the, the rest whole time. of this game. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I, I did see that, Jake, the champing. Nunes didn't give away a free kick, though. So he was getting into someone who did give away a free kick. Might have been Mason Redmond or, um, or someone like that. And he's just getting in the face. And then so Ray blew time on. He stopped the game clock to, <laughs> to champ him and tell him to move out of the way. So we love Razor. He loves getting in the way of these sorts of things. There you uh, go. Christian's sick to remember. <laughs> Christian, something from the weekend that grabbed your attention. Uh, so mine's a, yeah, a bit of a stat one. It's not just from the weekend, but it's probably a trend um, one of our analysts noticed in the office probably a couple of weeks ago, and it's something we're watching closely. So, so far this year, um, midfield intercept. So turning the ball over in the midfield zone and scoring from that. Um 43 times this year that a team's won that stat by a goal or more across the game. So you've scored six points or more from midfield intercepts than your opposition. 41 of those teams of 43 of one. Uh, and Geelong became the second team on the weekend to lose with that stat. So it's just, a, it's the way the game's sort of going to be able to turn the ball over in the, in 
either part of the midfield, you know, we've got attacking midfield, defensive midfield, but yeah, any part of the midfield zone and being able to turn that into scores. Is the midfield sort of, zone just anywhere between the, the arcs? Yes, correct. So, and we sort of spoke about on the podcast previously, sometimes you don't want to keep winning it back in your forward half because that just creates congestion and it's just so hard to score. And we talk about how often teams dominate territory for five, 10 minutes and the other team goes up the other end and scores because it's so much more open and free flowing. So even this year and the way, you know, the man on the mark and the game, we, we do know it's coming back to the old style a little bit, but it's still a little bit more open in the midfield to, if you can win the ball back in the midfield and yeah, as I said, turn that into a score. Um, as I said, yeah, so far this year, 40, 43 times you, the team's outscored them by six or more points and 41 times you won the game. So it's stacking up pretty well to, you know, concentrate on that part of the game to sort of set you up in good stead to win. Where was this stat a few weeks ago when we did uh, the the stats you need to win to win the game? Yeah, I think we did yeah, that after round. That, we did that after round two or <laughs> Come three. On, champion. Where it was, yeah, round two or three, it might have been you know six of eight <laughs> yeah. of the teams. Yeah, That's as fair. I said, we kept watching it and it's crept up now. And but it was just interesting, as you said, it Geelong yeah. on on the weekend uh, were one of the teams that's actually won that stat but lost the game. So. Mm, we yeah. might touch on that that game a little bit later. Uh, something I noticed, and I know that we're very lucky here in Australia given the cold COVID situation compared to some places overseas. However, what happened in Perth, I guess, over the weekend and the derby was played behind doors, but then the Eagles, after winning, had to put their masks on as soon as they got back into the race to go inside because masks, masks are required inside. And they had to sing the song with their masks on, which I thought was just a a bizarre look and something we might not, uh, well, if a game from Perth gets moved this weekend, we might not see it again. And it got me thinking that not even places like in the U S um, or in Europe are kind of having to do this sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. But look at the amount Perth. of cases they've got over there. I don't I, want to turn know. this into a political. No, 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 no absolutely podcast, not. But... but I just, I just thought it was really odd that, you know, there's like one case of community transmission and, and yeah. the, the players that have just been tackling and high-fiving and, you know, probably kissing each other after they kicked a goal or whatever, then have to put a mask well, on. What do you do when you song. play? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to play you with not, you. <laughs> you know, they might be sharing water bottles or, or something like that. So I, I just thought it was very strange that, um, you know, oh, look, um, yeah. The restrictions are in place for a reason. They've worked here and across Australia, and especially in Victoria. So I thought um, you were going to very... mention the um, the oh the circle game, the, the, the circle white... game that was kind of blew up. I mean, can we give? Does that need to be a, a story? I Is that a massive overreaction? A... I, I think there's a big disconnect between people who actively follow the news a lot closer than others. Uh, and I, I can tell you, I could probably tell you pretty comfortably that three footy players playing in Perth who are, you know, young and, in, in, and, and probably enjoy game uh, games with each other didn't think it was anything untoward. And, and the no. blood's been a bit, um, look, you know, probably they've learned their lesson now and know that it's a sign that's associated with something that we, we probably don't want to be associating with uh, and they probably won't do it again. But I think it was pretty harmless at the yeah. time. And and it's not the first time that I've seen that in, in a photo with, football players so it's and no. it's just a bit of a with anyone it's just a silly joke and yeah i think we can move on pretty quickly from that uh agreed uh something we can't move on from quickly though is collingwood and the issues that they're facing uh because we'd said last week if they lost to the suns at the g they'd be in a bit of strife uh well they did and now we've got, I've got north <laughs> melbourne this week <laughs> so it's fair to say there's a big problem and it started earlier well, it started a few years ago with the uh, uh, the list management and then the off-season sort of stuff that transpired this year and uh, they had to trade out players and then the uh, the whole presidential deb- debacle. Uh, but now it's spreading onto, onto 
onto the on-field as well. Uh, Christian, can we illustrate Collingwood's fall from grace in statistical terms as well from when they did make the grand final in 2018 until now? Yeah, so, I mean, the the drop-off's been pretty drastic. But to me, and we spoke about again on this podcast in previous years about Collingwood, the way they really defended and won games well was just ball hogging. They had more of the ball. They were good at contested possessions. They were always, you know, number one in 2018, uh, number four in 2019 and uh, second last year. So always been in the top four for that stat. Getting the hands on it first and then being able to use it better than the opposition, play keepings off go fast when they wanted to and really, really control the tempo of the game. This year, I mean, as I said, dis- disposal differential, first in 2018, first in 19, fourth last year, 17th this year, negative 42 per game. Just... Um, do, you, disposal... do you ever see drops like that? Yeah, well, pr- exactly. Like for three, probably, you know, I'm sure we've seen it before, but for three years of it, that was the clear dominant part of their game. Um, they just can't get that going. It, it's it's again, it's a pretty simple stat to use, but to me, that's the most stark for when you look at Collywood going. Well, that's the premise of their game was we had the ball more than you guys, and we got to control the tempo. They can't do that, uh, or they haven't been doing that this year. Uh, disposal efficiency, differential wise, so again, just using the ball better than your opposition. That's 18th. Um, so not only do they have the ball less than their opposition, but they're using it, you know, five uh, percent worse disposal efficiency than their opposition per game. So. Um, Yes, you know, which results in 16th for inside 50 differential. They're, they're still 10th for time in forward half. So, again, to be sitting 17th and not quite last in forward half, they've still got some sort of structure there. Um, but, yeah, it's it really has been the, the whole keepings off style of game that's dropped away. It's kind of bizarre because you, you, you can kind of notice on the weekend their disposal is just, they're so fumbly and they just don't hit the targets. And um, for a team like, the Suns, who have traditionally been pretty awful at the MCG, firstly, because they don't get a lot of opportunity there. Um, and secondly, they've just had a bad run of it. For them to look so comfortable at Collingwood's home ground uh, and, and apply the pressure and intercept it at will, I, I just thought it was it was bizarre to see that this is the sort of a very similar team to what has been, you know, a consistently decent final side for the last, you know, two or three or four years. Um, Jake, what have you noticed from the Pies and, and how do you fix this? <laughs> Well, there's a few things and I, we made, and not just us, but everyone spoke so much about um, Adelaide's fall from grace from the 27, going so close to winning the flag in 2017 to the infamous camp and all of the off, off field stuff to the poor performances and all that sort of business. The question I have is, is Collingwood's fall from 2018 where they were actually closer to, to lifting the cup? in that grand final that, you know, we forget that they were five goals up in the first quarter and they, they probably should have won the game. Is their fall to where they are now in that sort of same period of time, that three year period, is that worse? Well, I said this to Matt sort of pre pod in hindsight, it's always good to, to look at it, but again, coming with the numbers hat on, they were never the most dominant team in, even in 2018. Collingwood. Yeah. yeah, Fifth for points for, um, you know, they were, I think ninth, tenth for points scored per inside fifty. So they'll never that you know tsunami team that they could just score at will. Again, it all goes back to what I was saying earlier. They had this massive structure, but yeah, looking at twenty eighteen, yes, they got close to the grand final. They could have you know listed the Premiership Cup. They, they weren't a, a head and a neck above the rest of the competition. They just got there with good footy, you know, mm. per, per. But they match were playing on the day. But they were never. Yeah, I don't think you know like Richmond has been, Geelong has been, Hawthorne have been in the past. Teams actually chasing them. I don't think Collingwood's ever been ahead of the pack. 
I think Adelaide were getting there in 2017. So again, they were just more dominant um, on top of the ladder sort of, you know, for longer stage of that season. So therefore from grace, you know, happened quite quickly. Whereas yeah, Collingwood, we do talk about it three years of consistent finals performances, but three years where there's always been that question mark. They've always been behind Richmond or Geelong or West coast in something each season. It's usually their offense. And as I said, this year, it's, yeah, it's, it's all fallen apart quite quickly, mm. but Looking at hindsight, I wouldn't say that, yeah, they've, they've gone from 1st to 17th. They've probably gone from, you know, mid 4th to 6th to 17th, which is, you know, still a big fall. That's we fair, but I think just looking at the the, the lists of both both clubs now, and you're looking at, for, what, for me, what I look at is the, the players sort of under the 23, you know, age sort of, that sort of point to sort of see the younger players coming through. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to be just bashing Collingwood, but there's really no one under 23 that I'm really excited by at the pies at the moment. Nobody. Mm. So Jake, I mean, you kind of, you, you sort of you, you circling the, the point that I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to here is that they're probably going to have to go to the draft and, and, and get some young elite 100%. talent. In. Yeah. Does that mean that Buckley stays for a rebuild? Like what do you think they should do with Buckley? Well, they've got to decide whether Buckley is going to stay for the rebuild. And if that's the case, then they're going to have to give him a three or four year contract. They can't just be going one year at a time. I mean, and I just don't think that's going to happen. So I think that the, 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 what is more likely to happen is Buckley will finish up this year, whether it's announced um, this week, next week, if they would potentially lose to North Melbourne, which would be another shocker. Um, but I can't see Buck. We said it last week. I can't see Buckley going around again. If they were to lose to Gold Coast, let alone if they were to go back to back losses. So he, was, he would be to leave and then they'd be having to look at replacing him and whether they were to go down the, the Ross Lyon, Alastair Clarkson experienced coach path or they would go someone with less experience, um, you know, AKA Buckley. I know Buckley was the favorite son at the Pies, but let's be honest, he came in with very limited coaching experience when he took the, the head job. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions around there, but absolutely they've got to embrace the draft. And, and the, the big one for me is... Um, Nick Dacos. I mean, Matt Rowles had enormous pressure, but let's be honest, he went to Gold Coast. Um, <laughs> you know, how much pressure is Dacos going to have when he goes yeah. to Collingwood, potentially as a pick number one? I mean, it's it's Jack Watts all over again. It is. Uh, and before we deal in too many hypotheticals, I think we should move on because we can talk about the pies, Jake, as we sort of said in our pre-pod meeting for an hour, maybe two. Uh, so Collingwood fans, if you do want us to bash your team for an hour, we could do a special <laughs> podcast for you. Just let us know. If you don't uh, want us to bash your team for an hour, just follow Matt Walsh on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should move on. Uh, Christian, this week, uh, we tasked you with something really fun. Uh, and it's basically, who are the best ball users while under varying amounts of pressure? So we're going to get you to take us through the players who have the best disposal efficiency while they're under pressure the players who receive the most pressure per disposal and those that receive the least pressure per disposal. Uh, where do you want to start? How do we, how do we want to kick this off? Um, yeah, exactly. I think you just nailed exactly what we measure. It's on, on the point of disposal, how much pressure um, that person's under. So starting from the least amount of pressure is a set position. So that's kicking over the man on the mark. The umpire hasn't called play on, so no one can uh, run at you. Uh, the next lowest level is general play, no pressure. So most of the kick-ins where you've run just outside the square and no one's come at you yet, or you've received a handball off the guy that's just marked it and kicked it before the guy on the, you know, the man on the marks had any time to come at you, all the way up to physical pressure. So there's, uh, I think there's five or six steps uh, all the way up to, yeah, being actually physically touched while you get a kick away or a handball away. Um, and again, which correlates to if, if, 
the disposal is then ineffective. That person that's put physical pressure on will get a tackle. If you ended up getting an effective disposal away, there's no tackle recorded, just a physical pressure act. So, um, yeah, we'll start with, I mean, it's probably an obvious list of names, but the guys that have been under the most pressure per disposal so far this year of, you know, the top 200 ball winners I've kept it to. Um, so, again, the names are no surprise. <laughs> Pat, Patrick Dangerfield. Um, so, again, we talk about if a team puts on 200 points of pressure, that's a lot of pressure they're putting on. He's under 214 points per pressure on his for, for, On average? On average, yeah, per, per disposal. So, wow. um, yeah, so he's, you know, receiving an elite sort of amount of pressure if, you know, if that was an opposition. Uh, um, just before we do get too deep into this, we did do a whole episode on, on pressure last year. So if you do want to know uh, where these sort of numbers stack up and what constitutes different levels of pressure uh, before you get into this, make sure you do go back and listen to that pod because it is a really good one. You can find that uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Yep, yep. And um, next name on the list is almost pretty much even with him is Hugh Greenwood at Gold Coast. Again, just an inside beast. Um, yep. you know, doesn't get a lot of link-up play on the outside. So it, uh, same sort of number, 214 uh, pressure points per disposal. Third, Liberatore, Clayton Oliver, Paddy Cripps, Taylor Adams, Tom Green from GWS, Ben Cunnington, Ollie Wines. So you can see none of those it's names. Ten, ten Usual suspects. Same player. <laughs> yeah, you can, it's, it's all sort of stacks up by the eye. You watch it and these are the guys that are sort of firing out handballs and, uh, you know, things like that from the bottom of the packs and have always got, um, you know, you usually receive the most physical pressure at stoppages because everyone's already so close together. It's not hard to sort of lay a hand on someone or get a tackle. It's the general play, um, you know, tackling sort of stuff that sort of happens, rare, you know, a bit more rarely than the pre-clearance stuff. So, um, again, just using that. So on those on those guys that are receiving so much pressure, so who does have the best disposal efficiency under physical pressure of those names? And it's um, probably, again, I'll went all the way down, I think the top 16. And one of the bottom ones is Luke Davies Uniac, who's 191 points per pressure. So I think he's the 16, uh, 191 points uh, per disposal of pressure. Um, and he's actually using the ball at 68% when he's under physical pressure, which is the highest of those uh, 16 names. Hmm. Second highest is uh, Tom Green from GWS at 63 and 30, 62% for Paddy Cripps. Um, and then the only three above 55, uh, 57% was the next highest, which is Clayton. Wow, Oliver. so those it three are, goes down pretty low then. Yeah. As soon as so you sort of under down, physical there's, pressure. There's, um, you know, Jack Viney at 39%, I think was the worst. Uh, sorry, Chad Warner was actually 32%. Um, and then Jack Viney. So they're the guys that are receiving a lot of pressure when they're actually under physical pressure, which is the top level. They're, you know, not using the ball. Uh, quite cleanly, like cleanly, but again, you probably look at someone like Green and Cripps, um, and to me, their disposal efficiency is higher probably because they're firing off handballs once mm. they're getting tackled, which is good. That, that's good decision making. You don't want to hack kicks forward. So again, I've only got the disposal efficient efficiency. But Luke Davies Uniac by the eye, and sort of I wanted to use it, try to dig into these numbers maybe later on, um, on this afternoon. But yeah, it's sixty eight percent when he's under physical pressure. I feel like he's more of a kick player, and he's been playing forward a lot, so. That's pretty good to be able to take a tackler on in the forward 50 and, you know, either kick it to space or give a handball off. Um, he's not your typical yeah, inside bull like Patrick Cripps and Tom Green. So to see his name up there. Um, and, yeah, again, I've, I've been a big fan of Davies Uniac as a, as a kid and he probably hasn't reached his, you know, cool, clearly hasn't reached his peak potential at North yet. Uh, but, yeah, it could be one to watch. Just that That's just an early sign that he's he could be a good inside um, ball user. So does that mean that uh, he's while he's under pressure, he's, I mean, 
I don't know if you've got the breakdown there of what his disposals are, but an effective disposal counts as a, I remember when we did this, it was just a long kick, even if it goes to a contest and is, and is halved. Yep. So could that be one of the things that he's doing is while he's under pressure, he's getting a kick over a certain yep, amount of meters. Even, just- again, that's even harder to do. So to be, to be, so again, I was only using the physical pressure number. So this is when right. someone actually, you know, got their hands on you. To be able to do a 40 meter kick to a one on one where you're getting tackled is probably a good skill to have. So, even if those numbers are in it, it's not like, oh, those numbers are just lucky. It's still 68, you know, it's still higher than all the other guys when they're, yeah. when, you, when you're tackling a guy. And that's what our, the, all these pressure points are 214 pressure points. Basically, the measurement comes from, from what Patrick Dangerfield's receiving. It's 214 times harder for him to hit the target than when he was under no pressure. Right. So, that's what the kick over the pressure mark. points. Yeah, so this is what these pressure points come from. That's the, the translation of 214 points is you've just made that disposal 214 or two, you know, two, two times harder sort of thing, you know, than than usual. So it all does come back to scaling to, you know, how how would a player usually use the ball compared to, you know, how much pressure they're under. So um, again, looking at different levels of pressure, as I said, physical pressure being touched, and then there's implied pressure, which is really someone within your space, so two to five meters away, which is closing and chasing. So I've looked at the guys that are actually better while being physically pressured than being implied. So they actually want the heat on them. There's of the, I think I went to the top 150 ball users. There's only seven players that are actually better under physical pressure than they are under implied pressure. So they're actually better using the ball when they're getting tackled. Than that when shouldn't make any sense, right? <laughs> Correct. But when I say the first name, it probably does because he okay. comes up on top of everything and it's Dustin Martin. Dust, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 10, 10% better when he, so if you, we, you picture Bra- Dustin Martin trying to break through all the tackles. It's amazing yeah. that even if he doesn't break through the tackle and they've still got the physical pressure on him, he's hit the target 80% of the time. So admittedly it was it's it's only it's 3.3 chains per game so what's he played it's about 15 16 um, times this year that he's been under physical pressure but 80 percent disposal efficiency compared to the 17 times he disposed of the ball with implied pressure so someone either closing or chasing really close to him he's at 70 percent so uh, a better mm-hmm. user yeah with physical than um, when he's not next one is dom sheed who's seven percent better physical than implied uh adam chera at frio luke davies uniac as i said uh he's actually seven percent better when he's um being tackled than when it's implied pressure took miller and david mundy and sorry and christian petrarca so they're the only guys that are sort of better um yeah at being when they're being using the ball when they're being tackled compared to implied Mm -hmm. pressure david mundy was one we'll talk about again pre-pod jake that you can almost see that he's just so he's so clean in the traffic that you know it it's, his, his difference is negligible. He's, he's 69% when he's implied and 69.5% when he's under physical pressure. So it doesn't phase him whether he's being tackled or closed in. He still hits the target as often as, as you know, either way. We'll touch on Monday a bit later because <laughs> uh, I know that Jake do, does love him. A bit of a man crush going on at the moment. Uh, with, what, about, what about the players under the least amount of pressure? Are there players who just... Uh, are happy to, I don't know, swan around and get the cheapies or those that get to good space and then don't have any pressure on them. Like who are the players who are uh, under the least pressure when they get a kick away? Yeah. So again, there's probably two. And if we sort of start at general play, no pressure, it's probably your kick in players. The guys that are getting it deep in defense, um, not necessarily taking marks and standing there kicking over the man on the mark, but you know, a lot of uh, backwards kicks where they take off straight away or handballs at the back. So Jack Bowes, Oh, I was about uh, to say Jack Zebel. I feel like yeah, he would have well, knocked up quite a few Jack of these. This quite, year. So Jack Zebel again, I think he waits. He's, he's 
quite good at waiting till the closing pressure comes. So a player does come yeah. to in his vicinity before he uses it. He uses it at the last possible moment. Uh, but yeah, Jack Bowes, seven disposals per game where he's under no pressure in general play. Jordan Ridley uh, and Luke Ryan equals second. Jack Siebel, fourth. Then um, Zach Merritt is the only midfielder in that group. And then Dyson Heppel, who's, who's probably playing down back um, a bit more. So, yeah, Zach Merritt was one I highlighted. He's yeah. at five um, disposals per game where he's under no pressure in general play. His disposal efficiency from those, 71%. The other guys I mentioned are all at 90%. That's so, again, he's getting it under very – but he's probably getting it in more – dangerous positions and again a hard yeah. position to hit a target if you're getting it in the forward half compared to in the defensive goal square but still it's it's one of those ones he seems to be getting a lot of what people probably want to call cheapies around the back or something but yeah he's not quite using it as as you know at 71 percent, it's you know less than uh three quarters of his of the time he's under no pressure he's hitting the actual target so uh, he was one of the names I highlighted. And then from a set position, again, just the top name probably surprised me the most, Brandon Ellis. And he's clearly ahead 11 times per game. He has the ball under from a set position. So he's taking a lot of sort of uh, link-up marks for Gold Coast. He's always, yeah, it was, it was obviously that was his strength for Richmond as well as being a, that outlet player waiting in space. Um, second to him is Josh, Josh Rotham, who's such a hard name to say when you try to say that fast, <laughs> but Josh Rotham from West Coast is also at 10 uh, disposals per game a set, uh, from a set position. And third is Josh Corbett. Um, and again, most of them were higher up the field players. This guy's a marking beast for Gold Coast up forward. So he's 10 times per game. He's kicking it from a set position. And he's just, that's how he wins the ball. It's, it's all overhead stuff for Josh Corbett. But again, 55% disposal efficiency from a set position. So again, that'll be a lot of probably behinds um, from set shots, but 55% again, it's another number that sort of stood out to me that he's clearly one of the worst. At, he's getting a lot at set position, but he's not not doing a lot, lot with the ball. Uh, what about those who butcher the ball? Do you have any stats on things like deliberate out of bounds? Who's got the most most of those? Because, uh, you know, I'd play to tends know, to... Yeah, well, I, I, we talked about yeah. play go through the middle this year, but surely there's some of the some of the players who like to hug the boundary and just stuff it up all the time. <laughs> yeah, so Jake, Jake sort of requested, you know, to sort of, yeah, what are the numbers like for deliberate out of bounds? I looked at this year. The leader is, you know, the early clubhouse leader is Matt Buntine or Buntine. I think it's Buntine, but he's... Uh, He's only played the four games. He's had three deliberate out of bounds and then there's a whole heap of names on two. So they're not big numbers. But went back and looked at all time. So we've obviously been tracking reasons for freeze against um, since 99. And there's one clear leader. Um, and again, I don't have the figure for out, out on the fools in front of me, but I know he's, this, he's, he's way out in front of these ones as well. It's Heath Shaw, who was actually pinged 45 times across his career for deliberate out of bounds. Next most we've seen is Luke Hodge and Josh Kennedy at 14 each. So uh, oh, he's well out miles out in front. And, and you know what? Ahead, so. I, I could guarantee you for every single one of those, he would have gone up to the other. I say, what? There's no <laughs> way that was delivered. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, just one of the names that highlights to me in an early, early watch is, uh, as I said, there's 14 is the second most. Uh, Jacob Wiedering's already up to 11 uh, for Carlton. So he's probably the youngest name on this list. Probably the others are all either finished their career or towards the end of their career. Mm. And yeah, as a Carlton supporter, I think could be one to watch. If he plays another one or 200 games, he could be up in the uh, 20s or 30s for deliberate out of bounds because he's very good he's at sure you. run for his money. He tries to disguise the hat kick out of defence, but sometimes can't do it as well as I think he thinks he does. So, uh, Josh Kennedy, uh, Sydney's Josh Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I would have thought it would be basically all defenders. Yeah, I think Sydney's game style it was very much hug the boundary and play very conservative in, you know, 
late 2000s, um, mm. you know, right in the middle of Josh Kenny's career. So to see his name up there and, and Dion Prestia and Cochner up there as well, who probably, same as Richmond, just take the ground and get the ball forward. Um, yeah, so they're, they're probably the, you're correct, they're, they're the midfielders that are surrounded by defenders mainly on that list. Fair enough. Uh, we missed this debate last week. I think after we posted the podcast, it started to heat up, but the prison bars ahead of the showdown uh, and the, well, I don't know how you describe it, the childish fighting that ensued between uh, Koshy and then Collingwood and then Mark Corder got involved and Eddie stuck his nose in it. And uh, Collingwood Jake, president Eddie Mer- Oh, hang on a minute. Oh, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Has there been a more stupid insular fight in footy i mean who honestly cares about this sort of stuff beyond eddie mcguire because i think we're mature enough as a league and supporters uh to get over it well we we? just need you just need to go back 15 minutes to what we're talking about with collingwood collingwood have a hundred issues at the moment whether port adelaide wear that jersey or not should not even be anywhere I don't understand why it is anything that is that they're concerned with at the moment. They, they should they've got so much to worry about with their with the, the state of the club at the moment. Forget it. Whether Port want to wear that jersey or not, let them wear the jersey. Get over it. It, it, it has no impact and bearing on 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 um, on the Collingwood Football Club. But I but I agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's just laughable almost that it became such a big story. Um, and, and the fact that the said, AFL had said. to come out and say we we would be docking you four points should you choose to wear it, you know how great would it be if it was round twenty three Port Adelaide, you know they're already locked in their position they can't go up or down and they're like you know what stuff it we're going to wear the jersey and we're going to lose our we're going to win the game and we're going to lose the four points and it won't make any difference. Yeah, well, it depends who they play because the four points might go to another side that's just on the precipice of the eight. You could have uh, an interesting well, situation. Well, if, if it was the showdown. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. I mean, for goodness sake, you look at the week before when Collingwood and Essendon wore exactly the same Guernsey on Anzac Day and you could barely tell the difference between the two. Carlton and Essendon, both dark teams, both wearing their home jerseys and, and then white shorts. It's, uh, it's so Victorian-centric because you look at any showdown, any derby, there's always a team in a white jersey and just the fact that you're allowing this but won't allow port to, to wear a heritage guernsey once a year for goodness sake like honestly fair enough if it was port playing collingwood and they were saying no you can't wear that yeah they're, yeah, not. they're yeah. not even playing in the same state they're not like, even remotely similar guernseys anyway yeah anyway it got no, me thinking because <laughs> I've, I've read the word guernsey about a million times this week uh what are some of the worst ones we've ever seen in the history of the league because there have been some absolute shockers christian have you got a nomination or two for us um, well, I've got a theory actually, but I do have a nomination, okay. but the, the theory, and it was probably said to me when I was about 18, 19, and I've agreed with it ever since a good footy jumper is one a kid can draw. So any, anybody in primary school should be able to draw their favorite footy jumper. You might not get the Carlton emblem Vertical exactly lines. right and things like that, but it's, <laughs> it's simple colors. Probably the one, the first one to go against that was a West coast, again, a home and away one anyway, was the West coast. It was orange that bled into some sort of red into blue. And again, it was just, it wasn't straight lines. It wasn't a pattern or anything. And it was just like, no kid can draw that without making it look like vomit on a page. Almost. Oh, that was <laughs> my, that's one of my favorite ones from all time. I reckon nah, that's one I'm of the best Christian. ones. Again, that's a, that's but again, within the last five or 10 years, that theory's got out the window. I love the indigenous Guernseys and you can't, yeah, you know, no primary school kids. So again, but it all goes back to the port one. There is so many Guernseys and different jumpers now that, you turn on a game of footy each week and you're like, oh, okay, they're, they're wearing this strip now. Like, I didn't even know they were wearing that one this year. Yeah, uh, yeah. there's so many now to not allow Port to wear. 
their prison bars for one game is yeah, it's ludicrous considering yeah exactly you, you can't keep track of how many Guernsey some teams use across the season nowadays exactly uh Jake what about some of the were the bad sponsorship ones we've had we've had the Carlton M&M's jersey which was the the awful light blue and then there was the St Kilda Pura milk jersey which was the yellow uh they've What's, got to be up there some of the worst one. you've seen which one was that the, one the Pura milk one yeah, they had like a yellow. That? It was instead of the red on their on their their front. It was yellow, and because oh, their sponsors were white yeah, cross with yellow. That. Yeah, <laughs> and that that was horrendous. Uh, we've oh, had. What do you expect? Sponsors always going to yeah. You know, Hawthorne had an awful the Power Rangers one. Um, they had yes. the, the the blue diamonds at some point as well. I reckon. I I actually reckon Ports had a few shockers. The 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 Port one from kind oh, of two thousand blue gray teal yeah. melty one. Yes. I, well, I, I know the, the one you're talking about. One. From like the paddle the pop line. There have been I some reckon, shockers. I reckon that was a shocker. Um, but on the just on the other end of the spectrum, I think we met, might have mentioned it before, but I love the the Giants, that charcoal um, jersey that they wore this year. Yeah, I agree. I reckon that's a cracker. I, I know Christian's the... not a huge fan. I, of it, I, but... I'd say there's nothing wrong with it. It's just whenever I watch that game, it makes me feel preseason. But again, that's just me. It's just going to take me time. But again, I can't. I can't fault it. There's nothing. Again, I think any kid could draw that as well. So that's. I actually like the dogs. The dogs, how it how they have almost like it looks like the collar. Yeah, yeah. There's there, some there. really good Guernseys at the moment. The yeah. the Melbourne the Melbourne away one, the the lighter royal blue is really really nice. Uh, the, obviously the old Fitzroy one that, that uh, Brisbane rocked down in Victoria. I think that's a really nice one as well. Uh, so we've got my, some good ones. Probably just... my least favorite is not even a design. It's the Geelong's t-shirt ones. And I don't know, maybe, oh, maybe the, that to me as Rowan said, maybe I'm an old man now or something. But to me, you don't you don't wear a t-shirt when you play. I don't know. They, to me, whenever they wear that in the preseason, I'm like, that's just taking the mickey out of the game yeah. now. You're wearing t-shirts. So. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. preseason. Uh, speaking of Melbourne, one of their away ones from the mid-2000s as well, when they had the big demon the old logo on it and that was just the the big demon was the front it was oh just yeah that's a shock oh, yeah that could be the worst actually that, <laughs> there have been some real bad ones i'm really glad they're taking the clubs are taking it seriously with some better <laughs> clash guernseys these days all right let's move on uh we've got a very special treat on the podcast today uh joining us is espn's afl draft expert chris dory uh he's uh, been good enough to give us a little bit of his time out of his busy week because i know that he's among a full-time job watching a lot of tape. Chris, how are you going? Uh, and a good start to the year for you? Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's been good having footy back. So being able to actually go to games, watch games every week, it's just been fantastic. So, I mean, a bit of a difference uh, really to last year when... A bit of a difference to last year when you would have been, uh, well, with a complete lack of footy early on and not knowing sort of a lot what the prospects are happening. It must be refreshing to actually see uh, what's in front of you and actually getting some tape and seeing how these kids are developing over the course of the first few games. Absolutely. Yeah. Because with the Victorians, it was just really watching back the tape from the prior year and only really some of the interstate games I could watch. So it was a bit tricky sort of keeping up with everything, no under 18 champs. So it was a bit of a tricky year to say the least. For those of you who uh, who don't know, know our good friend, Chris Dory here, he has a very keen eye for some of these youngsters. And there's quite a few of these guys that you've picked up very early on and their names that you've sort of floated to us years in advance and we're like who is this guy and they've, they've they've gone on to become top 10 draft picks so very good eye for for young talent so we're keen to get your thoughts on um on who has caught your eye early this year yeah well we might as well say like why don't we go through an early top 10 contenders i guess uh for the draft at the end of the year chris do you have any idea about who are, who's firming as a, an early number one prospect 
Yeah, so for the pick one, there's two names that are really standing out at the moment. And there's a third that's just outside of that, I would say. But um, currently, Nick Dacos is a favourite of many with his early start to the year, um, with an average of 33 disposals, three goals. He's off to a hot start, to say the least, in the number. How does he compare to, to his brother? Much more advanced. So he's a little bit taller, but he's got just a better rounded game overall. He can win more of his own ball, finds a lot more of it. It's a scoreboard more. He's just a much better player overall. So much well, more advanced. probably fitting that the Pies might actually have picked one exactly. at this point anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. they're going to need him. <laughs> yeah. And the problem with Collingwood, of course, well, they traded out their first round pick last yes. year to GWS in that trade. And they only got pick in the twenties, pick 30 and a future fourth, which yeah. was Geelong's. One of the many fourth, Collingwood problems at the moment. Yes, they might not have really the picks to sort of, I guess, match it too easily. So they might have to go into deficit, which is... I was going to ask you about that. Or alternatively, they'll have to trade for picks. So they can go into deficit in terms of points available as or they can or they can obviously trade out future picks again, but you probably don't want to be doing that if you're entering a period of rebuild. Yeah, so what I would be expecting at this stage is the most likely scenario is that Collingwood will have to trade future picks to really get enough points in this year's draft to be able to match the day costs. And there's also um, another prospect in Collingwood's next gen Academy as well. So um, <laughs> Dib as well. So he's a small forward. Um, he could be a second or third rounder. So there's further points on top of day costs Collingwood will want to be, I guess, have available. A few headaches for the pies. Uh, who else is in that yeah. conversation uh, for the number one pick? Uh, you said you had two or three names sort of in your power rankings. Yeah, so um, I've got Horn from South Australia. So he's a mid-forward, um, Gary Ablett-esque in the way he plays. But early season, what I've loved is his Which application one? defensively. <laughs> yeah, so Gary Jr. to be specific. So he's not quite that tall, not as tall as his father. But um, yeah, just he has that same strength through the hips. Um, vertical athlete and really strong mark, but moves really well. Great skills, very damaging player offensively. So being that real two-way player... Um, I'm really liking the look of him early days playing Sandville League footy and um, he's got the performances on the board from years past too. Excellent. And who was the guy that's just behind these two? Yes, I'm liking the look of Tyler Sonzi. So um, another Victorian prospect, but early season he's played some pretty good footy in the NAB League. So probably not as strong against Geelong VFL the other week, but um, look, he's there about some probably that third player just outside that mm. top two. How much do you take out of a game like that where the VFL club, the Geelong VFL team is probably a fair step above what these NAB League kids are doing? Like, how much of the form or the exposed form of, especially forwards, are you taking out of those sorts of performances? Well, given the um, under 18s got smashed by 130 points, yeah. you can't really take too much out of that one this year. But um, in the past, um, the under 18s have been a lot more competitive. In 2018, I believe it was, they actually won the match. So um, that was the draft with Lacocious, Sam Walsh all those players, Bailey Smith. So incredible top end that year. Pretty handy, it yeah. really goes to show the top end this year isn't quite up to that same standard. Mm, so interesting. Um, well, one other point I think you raised in one of your earlier columns this for us this year was the lack of football that has been played by so many of these Victorians. How much of a role does that play um, in what you're just talking about, but also going forward and, and from a club perspective, how difficult is it to select players when there's a limited body of work? Yeah, it's definitely impacted their development. Like you've got some of the private school kids who still have sort of had that sort of private coaching almost on the side, but without sort of a year of games, that really hurts development. So 
Um, and, and we've seen it with the first year players this year where, look, there've been a few Victorians who have surprised, but a lot of them just haven't been nearly as advanced as expected, whether, whether it's a Will Phillips or I, I could go on with all these different names. So mm. you just haven't seen that immediate impact. And it's sort of transferred over with the under 18s this year as well, where they're just probably not as advanced as you'd like them to be at this stage. And it really showed in the game against the Geelong VFL side. Interesting. Just Who's... without any real standout performances, no one could really carry. Dacos was in terms of ball winning and offensively the only one that could really have much of an impact there. And the others mm. just had to go defensively. It'd be interesting to see how they go as the year progresses, you know, gain some more confidence playing actual footy. Uh, who knows? So how far below is the next step down? You sort of mentioned those first three names uh, off the rank there. How far is the step down and, and who's in that next band? Yeah, so from there, I'm looking at um, Matthew Roberts. So um, in my weekly wrap this week, he'll actually be my the player that I'll be focusing on. But um, yeah, so he's a good midfielder, good forward. I'm really racking it up so he can get his over 30 disposals a game, kick a few goals. So he's that dual position impact player, really nice left foot, um, moves well, strong marks. So there's a lot of traits there that I'm liking. Um, he's probably not a top three contender, but I'd say probably a half step back from those top three. Um, Josh Rachel is another where I'm liking him really good sort of small forward can push up through the midfield contested side, good, strong tackler really hits the scoreboard and he's been good for a few years now. Um, really impressing in 2019 as well. And looking like a top prospect there. Um, Josh Sin, I'm liking from um, Sandringham, really good rebounding defender has a lot of speed, good kick, um, but can go through the midfield as well. Win it through there and generate a lot of drive forwards. So um, there's quite a few names there that are impressing, but probably compared to other years, I would say the top group is a bit behind some of the recent If you drafts. had to liken it to a previous draft in terms of the, the elite top end and then sort of how quickly it falls away, is there a draft in, in mind that, that we could kind of look at it similarly to? Um, yeah, that's yeah, throwing you under one. the bus with a bit of an, uh, <laughs> a question with no notice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, some of the ones maybe around, you could even say something like a 2016 draft where you don't necessarily have that top prospect necessarily. Um, I'm even thinking of the Andrew McGrath draft. So having the likes of Hugh McLuggage, you just you don't really have that necessary top number one, top number two. You just have really a group that are pretty good, but not on that superstar level where you might have the 2018 draft where you've just got, say, five, six, seven stars. You just don't have that top end quality, whether it's the top five, top 10 first round. It's just not there this year. I always think it's interesting how that, how it turns out that way. We always, there's always super drafts every, <laughs> you know, five years, 10 years, whatever Coming it might in the be. Water. But, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> how does it work? <laughs> yes. Look, some years are deeper than others. Like um, 2018, I actually don't categorize that as a super draft. I look at it more as a super top end um, mm-hmm. where Obviously, in the, the first round, I see is almost it could be the best ever first round. But then after that, you just don't necessarily have the depth or quality. Where if I was to rank, say, the top 100 players from that six, sort of five-year period of drafts, you wouldn't necessarily have your 20-plus players from that draft. But it's really that concentration of that best 10 or so from 2018 are just absolutely incredible when you go mm. through the names, whether it's Walsh, you've got Butters, you've got Lukosius, you've got Bailey Smith, you can go on. The list goes mm-hmm. on the Kings. Phenomenal draft. Don't forget Rosie. Yeah, he's another, yeah. Uh, fair enough. Hey, uh, um, where of, are we yeah. going now? Where are, where are we down to about pick six or pick seven so far? 
Yeah, so pick seven. So um, Matthew Johnson, I'm liking from um, WA. Um, he played his first Waffle League match on the weekend and was reasonably competitive. So tall midfielder, mm. has some Pendlebury-esque sort of traits, but I'm probably looking at him more as a Will Setterfield in terms of quality. Maybe a bit more comparable to that. Could be a little bit better, would be the hope. <laughs> You'd want some of his best 22. He plays that maybe. style of game and is looking at a similar stage where Setterfield was at the same age and stage another bit of question hey, without notice just by what you're what you, the players that you're talking about here they're, they're pretty much all midfielders or, or mid forwards it, it's yeah. pretty un, unlikely or, or rare for a key defender for example to be standing out this early in the year um look he can but typically key defenders don't go that early so we've had jacob weedering who was a pick one but we haven't had that many key defenders who have gone that early there's actually been quite a bit of success in the mid-drafts, back end of draft, rookie draft even, where we've had some really good key defenders, they don't have to go that early. Is that but because um, one of the, the dynamics matri- in... Sorry, uh, is that just because the maturity of their bodies is so... Uh, you, you, you probably need another three years before you start to see the, the physicality emerge in their sort of game? Yeah, I, I find with the most talented key position players, they're typically actually key forwards at this age and stage. And, and then often, maybe if they don't quite make it as a key forward, maybe take like a Liam Jones, maybe they'll switch back yeah, later on. That mm. seems so to happen. That's more bit, what sort it? of happens. Mm. And, and on the weekend, funnily, I'm Jake Riccardi for GWS. I was going through his stats, 40 disposals, um, and, and then 19 marks. First game <laughs> as a key defender. So I think that might be one to watch over the coming weeks for GWS. <laughs> All right, wrap up the uh, the top 10 for us. Any any key backs in that 8, 9, 10 slot? Yes, I actually don't have any key position players in my top 10. And I think that's one of the big things this year where up the top end, it's really your midfielders, flankers, some outside types that are looking good. But in terms of the key position types, it's more outside the top 10 that I'm seeing some that might be quite good or have some scope to develop, but they're not necessarily the very top end types. But I'm, um, yeah, rounding out my top 10. So I've got McDonald from Danny Nong. So um, good ball winning mid, covers the ground well, but can also go forward, hit the scoreboard. So he's averaging a goal a game. So um, he's going pretty well. Um, I'm liking Hugh Jackson, um, South Australian mid, really classy mid. Um, until this weekend, he was 30 plus disposals every game. This weekend, just a touch below that, but really racking it up over there. And um, number 10, I've got Neil Erasmus. So a new name to my top 10. So... Um, he's someone where he sort of rose to prominence in the um, Colts grand final last year, kicking four goals. And then this year he hasn't dropped below 28 disposals as a mid. So he's really made that transition, but really strong mark. And one of the interesting things with him is that I've never seen someone across half forward, take as many intercept marks as him just across <laughs> that half forward wing region. It's so it's like he's a natural fire. defender along that line. Yeah. So yeah, that's a real unique gift to, to his game that, I'm really finding just stands out every game is taking his two, three, four intercept marks across half forwards. So, um, mm. well, that's maybe something... it's a team that, yeah, does front half intercepts as their sort of focus. Yeah, possibly. So, if you've got that, I guess, intense forward pressure closer to goal, hey, you might mm. have someone who can, I guess, get those intercept marks and get it back inside 50 in a hurry. Keep your eye on him. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Nick Dacos. People love a father son. Are there any other sort of father sons that we could be looking out for in, in this year's crop? Yeah, so I'm looking at um, Sam Darcy. So um, Western Bulldogs, father-son, so son of Luke. Um, and his measurements are actually coming in quite good. So he's a 203 centimetre ruck key position player. So um, he's someone where maybe he even pushes into the top 10 come the end of the year. Um, oh, he's that close two- to the top 10? 
Yeah, so he could. Look, he's just outside of my top 15 at the moment. I've currently got him at 16, but he could really work his way up. So his last two private school games, he's kicked five goals. So he's obviously got those capabilities, but very mobile, still very skinny, but strong mark can take a contested grab. So there's a lot of attributes I'm liking. So um, yeah, he's one with scope to develop who could possibly be one of those key positioners who could push into that top 10 as we progress in the season. But mm. he's only really had the two NAB League games. One, he was really good. The other one showed some signs without dominating. So I'd just like to see a few more games before I really stick him in that region. Fair enough. It I'm is like, early. We are going pretty early here, but uh, it's always good to get a, get a bit of a sense of who's who's impressing early on. Yeah. Any other father-sons or uh, is, that, is that all on the, uh, the draft board likely? For yeah, so other, uh, look, otherwise you've got some academy players. So yeah. Mac Andrew for um, Melbourne. So a next gen academy. So um, really high leaper, really impressed me in that game against Geelong VFL where in that last quarter, um, the under 18s were getting absolutely smashed, but he was the one player where he didn't only stand up, but he actually really gained a meaningful ascendancy in the ruck, just soft hands, nice leap. Just there's enough signs there. Could be a key position player in the meantime as he develops physically. So, um, yeah, he's definitely one that I'm liking the look of. And also Josh Fahey, I'm not sure of the pronunciation at this stage, but really good rebounding defender and he's eligible for GWS Academy. So um, I think they'll pick him up. He'll probably take the kickouts in years to come for GWS. That's something to watch for. And I mentioned him in last week's weekly wrap as well. So if you check that out, you can see what I'm doing. I was just about to say, Chris, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Uh, We're going to try and get you on couple more times this year as things progress in the juniors uh, and uh, as the mid-season draft comes up. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Please do check out his his power rankings, which are on the ESPN website right now. And depending on when you're listening to this, his weekly wrap will be up as well. We try and get that up on a Wednesday morning. So uh, get around those. Uh, mate, very much thank you for joining us, uh, taking time out of your busy day. We very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Let's move on. Time for justified hype or hyperbole uh, where we'll say a statement and one of the other guys has to say whether the hype is justified or we're speaking in hyperbole. Christian, I might throw the first one to you if I can. Uh, The Cats should have won Saturday night's match versus Sydney. And I think I know the answer, but it might not be as obvious as to why. Yeah, well, I think they should have. And yeah, got nothing to do with the mark because I've I've always been a big proponent on it. Who knows if he could have sprayed that shot and kicked it out in the full. So a mark doesn't get you six points. So take that out of the equation. But um. Yeah, the stat for you from that game is obviously gave you the one earlier about they were mm. the second team this year to lose, you know, outscoring Sydney by a goal, at least from midfield intercepts. The other one is they won the contested possessions by 30, uncontested possessions by 60, inside 50s by 20, and had 10 more shots at goal than the Swans. So that's that is like <laughs> six, 66 times in, in our time, you know, since 2000, that's happened in a game where a team's had that much dominance in those four stats. Uh, and Geelong's the first time to lose in those 66 wow. games with those wow. numbers. So, yeah, sh- sh- should have won that game in more ways than one. It just goes to show. Uh, <laughs> you've got to well take opportunities. <laughs> and you can, and you, you're right, you can put it down to one moment in the dying seconds, but, geez, if you don't take your chances earlier in the match, it just it counts for nothing, doesn't it? Yeah, and and two six in the final quarter as well. I think they had 21 inside 50s in a quarter, which over 20 inside 50s is an astronomical number in a quarter and two six. So who says he was going to kick that? You know, everyone's like, oh, they didn't pay the mark. I'm like, well, they hadn't kicked straight before that. So yeah, right. how are you marking that one down? So, well, it might hey, be uh, I got one for you, Matt. Um, yeah, go on. Is Sam Walsh now Carlton's best player? Uh, 
Yeah, the hype is very much justified on this, I think. He is he is the best player that Carlton has at the moment because Patrick Cripps is out of form. Harry Mackay is close because he's he's second for the Coleman at the moment, but he still sprays a few for mine. And um he's kicking, you can't quite back him most, you know, in the majority of times because he'll he'll decide to snap from right in front and miss it or he'll do something. Uh, but Walsh, consistent 30 goals, uh, 30 games and a, uh, 30 touches and a goal a game the last, you know, three or four weeks. Uh, and I think he's an out-and-out star, and he is, at the moment, he's Carlton's best player, yes. I, I think I agree with you, but you just said one of my biggest pet hate things that people say, and that's for mine. That? I hate when people say for mine. I was going to say, I didn't say mean? the Gold Coast in there, did I? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, no, I, I agree. Uh, so <laughs> is David Mundy, Frio's second greatest player of all time, behind Nat Fife? Um, oh, I, w- I would love to say he's Frio's greatest ever player. I-, I love watching him. He's so good to watch. He rarely fumbles. He rarely makes mistakes. He never seems to miss when he's taking a shot for goal. But I think, I think you've got to put Fife and Matthew Pavlich as the two best Fremantle players. So Pav's um, still ahead of Fife. Ahead sorry. of uh, Monday, my apologies. Pavlich? Yeah. I think so. I think Pavlich, I think I'd be comfortable saying Fife, Pavlich, and Mundy are the three best players ever to play for Fremantle. I think they're the three best players. I, I don't think people would really be arguing that at all. I mean, one guy's kicked way more goals than everyone else for the club. One guy's won two Brownlows, and the other guy, I think, now has the game's record and is one probably their best ball user the club's ever had. And, and you know, who knows? Could land a Brownlow in in, in a few <laughs> months' time. But, no, I, I, I love David Mundy, and I think... He's, you know, we, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast playing over in Perth, but you know, he's to me, he's a very similar player to someone like Scott Pendlebury, but would not get the same amount of recognition as someone like Pendles does. Mirror image of Pendlebury with the, uh, the right boot. Uh, Jake, one before we wrap things up, uh, Darcy Moore should be a permanent forward. No, he shouldn't because he's not a forward. And I think we've, he was probably the best key, uh, key back in the comp through the first three or four rounds, he was playing brilliant footy and they, um, you know, through injuries and all sorts of stuff, they've pushed him into the forward line, but he's not a forward. They tried him as a forward when he first came into the league and he, yeah, he was younger, but he, it didn't really land for him and he just looks out of sorts. And I get the sense he doesn't enjoy playing forward. I think he's enjoy, enjoys playing back probably because he's so damn good at it. Um, I think if for Collingwood going forward, it, Darcy Moore is, in my opinion, Collingwood's, best player we're talking about Sam Walsh at Carlton I think Darcy Moore in his position is probably Collingwood's best player and I think had, had should he play as a defender for the whole year he's probably the only Collingwood player that's a chance of making the All-Australian team so I think yeah I would be getting him um, I'd be getting him uh, in defense quick smart certainly for this week against uh, against North Fair enough. Uh, all right, let's leave things there for this week, guys. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you get your tips in. I know it was a horror week of tipping uh, last week. I think everyone sort of struggled. You go? I, I, got, I got six this week, so I'm actually Is that because quietly... you didn't tip and you got all the away uh, teams or something? Crap, bull crap. <laughs> That's crap. Uh, I, I did tip and I got six out of nine, which Not bad. Uh, I think was pretty, which was pretty good, all things considered. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Tell your mates about us. Uh, we're good fun to listen to if we don't say so ourselves. Guys, again, thanks for joining us and we'll speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.